I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians, the whole chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Heavenly Father, help us to see the things that are not seen today. Be with Tom as he shares from your word. There's so much here. And we just need to absorb more of it so we see you as you are. Change our lives. Help us not just look at conflict around the world and say, what a shame, but move in our hearts to know what we're to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. This is yet another passage in 2 Corinthians that I've been looking forward to getting to for a long time. Just a magnificent theme. Uh, many of us in this room, if, if we're honest, uh, would have to acknowledge that there are times in our Christian lives when we have become disheartened, uh, discouraged, and I think especially uh, in recent years by the constant and ever more strident opposition uh, of this world against the person and the message that God has commissioned us to make known. In this country, at least for right now, we still enjoy the freedom to practice and proclaim the truth uh, that our 
that, that we have been commissioned to, to proclaim. And we, got, we have that freedom in greater measure than most of the Christians in the world have ever known. But even here, many Christians have become weary of being increasingly marked out as the enemies of everything that the culture holds dear. Uh, labeled as haters for believing and saying the, the very same things that Christians have been believing and saying ever since the church was created. Uh, and, and of course, we can be sure that the more faithful we are to speak for Christ and to live for Christ, the greater the opposition will become. That opposition is over and above the hardship that we share with all the rest of humanity because of the curse. Uh, the hardship of living in a cursed and decaying world on a cursed and decaying earth in cursed and decaying bodies. <laughs> Paul addresses both of those kinds of hardship, opposition from, uh, toward the gospel and our physical participation in the curse in this great chapter, chapter 4. At the beginning of the chapter and then again very near the end of the chapter, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. And as as a Prof. Howard Hendricks used to say, we need to know what the therefore is there for. Paul isn't saying, he's not just saying, buck up and be strong. This chapter is graciously filled with reasons that God has given to us not to be disheartened, but instead to li live each day with, with hope, with confidence, and with great joy. The marvelous encouragement that Paul sets before us here on God's behalf pulls no punches. He doesn't paint some rosy picture that ignores or minimizes any of the very real struggles that we face as the children of God. Instead, Paul tells us the magnificent truth about what God is accomplishing through every hardship that we endure. For Christ's sake, and every hardship that we endure under the curse, which is also, also ends up being entirely for Christ's sake. Knowing what God is actually doing in and through and because of the hardships that we must endure as ambassadors of Christ is all the encouragement that we need. And it's a very, very great encouragement indeed. And the first reason that Paul gives us not to lose heart is that the light that we bear to this world is the light. It is the light of life. In the first verse, Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. He's pointing us back to what he's just been talking about in the last couple of chapters. The ministry with which God has commissioned every believer and the church as a whole is to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ on earth. And he's made us, Paul says, a fragrance of Christ to God in the world. A fragrance pleasing to God, but either repugnant or delightful to men, depending on how they respond to the gospel of Christ. Together with this, this greatest of all assignments, we have also received mercy from God that equips us to keep the assignment. 
We saw in chapter 3 that Paul said God has mercifully provided so that we have been made adequate as servants of the new covenant. Not because of any adequacy in ourselves. He says, in fact, it is not at all of ourselves. It is entirely of God. And that mercy is not only in the form of enablement to carry out our assignment by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, but it's also mercy in the form of a, of a very much better covenant than the old covenant. The old covenant, the law given through Moses, consisted of letters written on stones, was purposed by God not to make men righteous and acceptable to God, but to prove to all of us that we are not righteous, that we are all sinners, desperately in need of a Savior. Our ministry in the new covenant brings that Savior, deliver, presents that Savior to mankind, and makes men, by the work of God, our ministry makes men and women and children bearers of the very righteousness of Christ. Now, because we've received this exalted ministry and this great mercy from God, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But he's just getting started. He's going to continue throughout chapter 4 to add reason upon reason that we should be greatly encouraged in the Christian life. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again so we have Paul's flow of thought for the first reason that he sets before us not to be disheartened. Therefore, we have the, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, in the first generation of the church, just as in our generation, there were people claiming to be representatives of Christ who were very skillful at adulterating, adjusting, corrupting the Word of God. To what end? Well, I believe the, the objective that Paul's talking about here for that corruption has to do with what he says next. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He said in chapter 3 that the, the gospel is, is, there's a veil over the hearts of, of unbelievers. So he says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I believe the corruption, again, that, of God's Word that Paul's talking about here is the kind uh, that, that some people concoct in order to eliminate the offense that the true gospel necessarily creates in the minds and hearts of unrepentant sinners. Nobody was more personally aware than Paul was of the offense that the true gospel presents to most of humanity. But Paul's implied exhortation here is that in order for ambassadors of Christ not to lose heart, we must hold fast to the truth, regardless of the offense that it causes to most people. 
and that Satan, the God of this world, <laughs> we, we recognize that, that he is constantly working to keep that veil over the hearts of lost sinners so that they may not see the light of Christ. We need to know that. But there's more that we need to know. If, if you find yourself disheartened or discouraged by the cold response that most people have to the gospel, the solution is never to adjust the gospel. It is never to make the gospel easier for lost people to accept. And the solution is most assuredly not to hide the light of Christ under a bushel in an effort to keep people from being offended. God's clear prescription for Christians who feel beaten down, disheartened because of the world's opposition to Christ is very straightforward. It is never to reduce that opposition by adjusting the message. It is to embrace the clear and repeated declaration of God that the greatest opposition to the gospel will happen when we're getting the assignment right, not when we're getting the assignment wrong. That's very important. <laughs> when we are proclaiming and living the truth without compromise, just as God has called us to do, that's when the opposition will be the greatest. So it's, it's precisely when the light of Christ is most rightly and most brightly displayed through us that our lives will be the hardest. So if your Christian life is easy, you're probably not handling the assignment very well. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, marvelous passage, stunning. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, it may strike you and me as rather discouraging news to read over and over in God's Word that, that Satan is working overtime to ensure that the gospel remains an intolerable offense to most of humanity. But as 1 John 4, 4 declares, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We're on the victor's side. And here in 2 Corinthians 4, in the very same sentence in which Paul reminds us that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to the gospel, he also reminds us that the truth we bear to this world is, quote, the light of the good news of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. There's nothing better to share with human beings than that. We have this magnificent encouragement from God, brothers and sisters. All of Satan's efforts to keep a veil over the hearts of sinners to make them unwilling to hear and receive the good news cannot change the fact that the light that you and I bear to this world is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We have every cause not to lose heart 
Because the light we bear is the light of life. In verses 5-7, to seven, Paul gives us a second reason not to lose heart. And that reason is that our weakness is Christ's showcase. Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. If you walk into a high-end jewelry store in any big city, I can assure you it will not be the showcases that grab your attention. In fact, the only remarkable thing about jewelry store showcases is how strategically unremarkable they are. They're typically constructed out of wood, metal, and glass. It's very simple structures with no ornate carving or decoration. The shelves and the props that hold the jewelry are covered with featureless fabric usually all of one very subdued color that is clearly intended to draw attention not to the fabric at all, but to the earthly treasures sitting on top of the fabric. I actually looked at images of jewelry store showcases online, so it's amazing how plain and boring the showcases are. Paul tells us in these three verses that you and I are called to be showcases treasure bearers. He likens us to earthen vessels. You know what that means? That means we're jars of clay. Not fancy ornate jars with sculptured curves and expensive inlays. Just plain old common pottery. A clay jar is nothing to get excited about in and of itself. It isn't valuable. It isn't even very strong. It's fragile. It's easy to chip. It's easy to crack. It's even easy to shatter into pieces unless it has someone strong to protect it. But God has chosen to put the greatest treasure that exists into jars of clay just like the ones that are sitting in the pews in this room. Why? Verse 7, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. See, it's intentional. Very, very intentional. Now, what treasure do we bear? <laughs> With what has God filled these jars of clay? Verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow. That's what we get to show off. Once again, Paul brings us back to the same life-changing truth that he set before us in, in the last chapters, especially in chapter 3. God likes to repeat the really important stuff, in case you hadn't noticed. At the end of chapter 2, Paul presented a question. He said, who is adequate for these things? After saying that we, we walk in triumph, in Christ's triumphal procession, we are fragrant aroma. He says, who is adequate for these things? What makes people like you and me adequate to serve as agents of Christ on earth. 
God's answer to that question is the only answer that matters. And His answer in chapter 3 and now again in chapter 4 is that our only adequacy is Him in us. We didn't put the light in here. He did. In fact, beloved, only inadequate people are qualified to do Christ's work on earth. Adequate people are of no use to God. Which works out really well because there are no adequate people. But it's not enough to be weak and inadequate. God intends that we will know that we're weak and inadequate. He intends that we will know that we are so weak, so frail, so flawed, so utterly insufficient that if it were not for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us, we would be of no use to God at all. Just empty dirt jars. And that's one of the most liberating and empowering things that you and I will ever know. If you're familiar with what's often called the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, you may have wondered, as I have, uh, how a guy like Samson got included in that list. Many of you know the story from the book of Judges. Samson was an Israelite warrior who was repeatedly given extraordinary physical strength when the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily. Nobody in his day was a bigger threat to the Philistines who were militant enemies of Israel, but Samson wasn't the brightest bunny in the forest, and he became infatuated with a Philistine girl named Delilah. It was a one-way romance. Uh, Delilah's devoted mission was to find a way to make Samson weak so that he could be overcome by her Philistine friends. After her repeated efforts to get him to divulge the secret behind his unusual strength, Samson finally relented. He revealed to her that if his hair was cut off, his strength would leave him and he would be like any other man. But i got to tell you something, that wasn't Samson's secret. He didn't even know his secret. He had it wrong. Samson is the only person in the four chapters dealing with Samson that attributes his supernatural strength to his hair. The text of Scripture repeatedly attributes that strength to, quote, the Spirit of Yahweh coming mightily upon him. Of course, Delilah after hearing what Samson said was the secret, made sure that Samson's hair got quickly cut off. And at that point, Samson found himself severely weakened and utterly humiliated. But again, his weakness had nothing to do with his hair. Judges 16.20 says, Samson did not know that Yahweh had departed from him. The Philistines took him captive, they put out both of his eyes and then they put him on display as entertainment while they threw a big party to celebrate Samson's defeat. They stood their vanquished and humiliated enemy between two pillars 
on the ground floor of the same building where 3,000 of the most influential and powerful Philistines were partying on the roof, celebrating their victory over this pathetic man. It was in that moment of his greatest weakness, helplessness, and dependence that Samson's heart before God was just as it needed to be for him to be most mightily used by God in the last act of his earthly life. He called out to God saying, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. As soon as he uttered that prayer of complete dependence upon God, he cried out a second time to God and he said, let me die with the Philistines. He pressed against those two load-bearing pillars on the ground floor with a greater strength than would ever have been possible for any human being in and of himself. And the building came down on his head and killed him and all of those Philistine rulers. On that day, Samson found absolutely nothing in himself that he needed. And beloved, that was the day that put Samson in the Faith Hall of Fame. Our weakness and our inadequacy should never cause us to lose heart and give up the fight. It should have exactly the opposite effect. Exactly the opposite effect. Knowing that the Holy Spirit in us is all the adequacy that we will ever have and all the adequacy that we will ever need to be ambassadors of Christ, to be mightily and eternally useful to God, is a merciful liberation from self to serve the living God. This is how it's supposed to work. We are supposed to be weak and utterly dependent on God. And that's how his strength becomes mightily displayed in us. Now let me ask a question, stop and ask a question at this point. Since this is true, what should you and I expect God to do in our lives when we, when we become independent? When we become dependent on ourselves in any way? Well, we should expect him to show us our inadequacy again, right? Does that help explain some of the humbling things that you've experienced in your life? Well, whether you know it or not, it does. Knowing God's agenda for us makes sense of our experience in ways that nothing else possibly can. God will frustrate our self-dependence because He loves us and He intends to make us eternally useful. And when we get to eternity, when we're on the other side of this, this mortal life, I can promise you we will all be celebrating those humiliations that drove us to greater dependence. We will all be celebrating them. This is part of that marvelous grid. You know, C.S. Lewis said, I believe Christianity is I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The third reason that Paul reveals here for us not to lose heart is that death in us produces life in others. 
He says, starting at verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Christ, that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He says it twice. That, that the, the life of Jesus may be manifested in our physical bodies, in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe. Therefore, we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. In these Wonderfully important verses, Paul reveals two powerful purposes of God through our participation in the death and dying of Christ. The first is that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And the second is that the life of Jesus may be extended through us to others. And all of this is for Jesus' sake. Verse 11. This is yet another of the countless Instances in which our human logic is useless to us until it is submitted to God's revelation. Did you know that your logic is just mush until you are paying attention to what God has declared? He made your logic to be a response to His revelation. Our strong tendency is to think that the best way for God to show off the life of Jesus through Christians would be for Him to have a bunch of super healthy, always energetic, ever-cheerful children roaming about the earth. That doesn't describe Paul or his co-workers or us. Instead, God puts the spotlight on the life of Jesus in and through us by letting our mortal bodies be just as mortal as everyone else's. The word mortal means subject to death. Did you know that your physical body is just as unredeemed as your unbelieving neighbor's physical body? Read Romans 8. Paul's not unclear about it. The redemption of our bodies is yet to come. We Christians spend a whole lot of time asking God for temporary deliverances. I call them special dispensations from the temporary manifestations of the curse. Don't we? Isn't that what a huge quantity, a huge percentage of our prayer life is about? Is God give me an exemption from the curse, at least for a little while? And that's not a bad thing to ask for. Those are the very kinds of deliverances that Jesus performed for countless people who came to him during his earthly ministry. But those physical healings were never an end in themselves. They were accomplished by Jesus to prove that he is who the Holy Spirit and the Father and Jesus himself said that he was. It was to prove that he is the long-promised Savior who's going to end the curse 
for all who trust in Him on the day when He comes back and makes all things new. But until that day, every human being who walks this earth lives in an unredeemed physical body. It's still under the curse. Even when our spirits have been resurrected and made new. See, there's, there's spiritual resurrection and there's bodily physical resurrection. We already have the first. We've already stepped out of death into life. John 5.24, by believing the witness of the Father to the Son, us who believe, resurrection of the body is yet to come. For us who belong to Jesus, the dying that we experience here and now is actually even greater than that which unbelievers experience. Unbelievers don't have to concern themselves with denying themselves and taking up their cross daily and following Christ. We do. And we must not miss that Paul says in this passage that the dying of Jesus is our experience all the time. All the time. He says we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Christ. In verse 10 and then in verse 11, he says we who, are, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Always and constantly. So when in this mortal life do we get relief from suffering for Christ's sake? We don't. And that's by design. Because God is doing miraculous things in and through and because of our hardship. Just like He did with Jesus. If we hear what God is telling us through Paul, I, let me backtrack. Not just like he did with Jesus. Right? I mean, I, I'm not saying that God accomplishes the same thing through us that he did through Jesus. I'm saying in the same pattern. You with me? If we hear what God is telling us through Paul, we will know that Christ made our continual suffering cause for rejoicing and not for despair. Ever. Not ever for despair. Because the life of Christ is being manifested in these jars of clay in these mortal, dying bodies. How? Through our proclamation and adornment of the gospel. The proclamation is our words. The adornment is our lives that match up with our words. Back in chapter 2, again, Paul said that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. A few verses later, he said, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Here in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. This is great. The, the words here that uh, I believe, therefore I spoke, that's a quote from Psalm 116, verse 10. All of that psalm, all of Psalm 116 is a thanksgiving by the psalmist for God's promise of deliverance from death. Even in great affliction, the psalmist believed and declared 
that God would rescue him from death and that he would, quote, walk in the sight of Yahweh in the land of the living. He believed and spoke God's promise of resurrection life, and he vowed to praise God in the presence of all the people. Now, I get that, that in, the, in its own context, in that psalm, in the short fulfillment, he's probably, the psalmist is probably talking about God protecting him from physical death. But Paul's quoting it and applying it to the promise of eternal resurrection. The deliverance Paul proclaims as absolutely certain is not protection from physical death and dying. What he believes and speaks as true for himself and for all of us who trust in Jesus is right here in 2 Corinthians 4.14 that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. The living hope that you and I believe and proclaim is not only that God will raise us up from the dead, it's that He will raise us up from the dead together. (laughs) And, And our great hope is not only that God will raise us up, but that He will raise up people that He saved through us because we believed and spoke. When Paul's writing this to the Corinthians, he's talking to a bunch of people in a church that was started because he believed and spoke by the work of God. He's saying God's going to raise you up too. Well, that, guys, that's what God intends for you and me to know. That on the last day when he raises us up, he's also going to raise up people that he saved through us. God's promise to us is not only that we will live, but that others will live through us. And that our death, our dying, will bring life to others. We must embrace the dying of Christ as our temporary reality, not as a bad thing but as a good and gracious thing that will be mightily used by God in the the hearts of sinners who desperately need Christ. Paul concludes this amazing passage with, with another of the most marvelous truths that we will ever hear. And that is that temporary light suffering produces everlasting weighty glory. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. The contrast Paul sets before us is dirt simple. That's good because we're made of dirt. It's important at a level that completely redefines our worldview. Temporary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I love the phrase weight of glory as a Hebrew major. I've said before, the word glory in Hebrew, it means weight. That's the root meaning of the word, weightiness. Glory is heavy. 
For Paul to describe his own sufferings for Christ as light should get our attention, right? Later in chapter 11 of this same epistle, Paul lists some of the hardships that he had already suffered for the sake of the gospel, contrasting his own life with the lives of some of the teachers that were not speaking the real truth to the the Corinthians. He says this, he says, "Are are those guys Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? He says, I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Do you know that many men die from one round of that, not five rounds? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent treading water in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Anybody here think you got it, you got it worse than Paul? We must not miss the very last thing that Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, this light affliction that's momentary is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And here's the last thing. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are everlasting. You and I will never rightly assess the suffering and the hardship of this life if our spiritual eyes are fixed on the same things that our physical eyes can see. This is the same truth that Paul presents in Colossians 3 when he says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Beloved, If you spend your life looking around, you will be discouraged and disheartened. If you spend your life looking forward and upward where your life is hidden with Christ in God, if you have your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of faith, you will run this race with endurance and you will be mightily used by God. Stop looking around. Only an eternal perspective Only an eternal vantage point will sustain you and me, I'm talking to myself here too, to keep the commission that God has assigned to us and to do so joyfully and faithfully. Brothers and sisters, what if God actually means what He says here? 
What if this isn't just platitudes, but it is instead actually how God intends for you and me to go through every single day of our lives as His children? Believing and counting as true every day that the only strength, the only sufficiency that we will ever have to represent Christ is Him in us. And that that's all the sufficiency we will ever need. We can do, you and I can do all things through Him who strengthens us. Dear Father, thank You for this time together with our brothers and sisters for eternity. Lord, we pray that while we're still here, while we're still here in these, these decaying and, and dying bodies, Lord, that we will rejoice. We'll rejoice in, even in the hardships that You've set before us because, Father, we know that You are using those things to show Christ off all the more brightly, all the more perfectly, even through imperfect vessels like us. What a glorious job You've given to us. What a marvelous promise we bear every day. Father, make us delight. Teach us to delight in our situation because it's beautiful. Thanks to Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.